Rashi is the teacher of the Jewish people. From school children to advanced scholars, people study Chumash with Rashi, the Talmud with Rashi. In this episode, we're going to look at the life and impact of Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki and try to get a better handle of his life and times and what it was exactly that he sought to accomplish. As always, please like and share this episode. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. I've got such a good story I'm about to burst, but I'm sure I've shared it with someone, a couple of you in the room, so if you heard it, I apologize for repeating it, but it's such a good story. The story is about pistachio seeds. Does anyone know my my pistachio seed story? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. This is such a good story. So, the pistachio seed industry today in the United States of America is a $1.6 billion industry. It's a very large industry, the pistachio, the pistachio seed industry. Here's the thing. In 1975, do you know how big the pistachio seed industry was in the United States of America? Zero dollars and zero cents. Why? Pistachio seeds are indigenous to Iran. They do not grow naturally in the United States. Pistachio seeds... grow on trees, and they are very, very finicky trees. They require a very specific kind of climate. They need to grow in a desert that's very hot in the summer, very cool in the winter. They require a very specific salinity in the soil. Their their, uh, roots go very wide and very deep, so it requires a very specific kind of earth for them to grow in. Their leaves are very big, so the sun has to hit them just right. They grow in a very, very specific environments, and they only used to grow in a very specific region in Iran. In 1920... In... Not going to argue with that. In 1929... In 1929, a fellow named William Whitehouse was sent by the United States to Iran to collect as many pistachio seeds as possible to try to import them to the United States to see if they would grow. He spent about six months in Iran. He he, uh, took back with him, I think it was over 30 pounds worth of seeds. And he began planting them. He thought that California would be the right place to grow them. And he tried planting thousands and thousands and thousands of pistachio trees. And guess what happened? They didn't work. They didn't work. Today's class is not about pistachio seeds, although they're fascinating. It's about Rashi. Rashi is, one of the, is the teacher of the Jewish people, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, one of the most unbelievable figures in the history of the Jewish people. Just yesterday we read in the Torah, we read the story of Avraham, the great Avraham, as he goes to war. What happens? Vayavo Hapalit, the defector, the escapee, someone escapes and tells Avraham, tells Abraham, Avraham, your nephew Lot has been captured. Rashi, who we're going to talk about today, explains, based on his tradition, who was this escapee? Who is this defector? It's a fellow named Og. 
Og goes ahead and informs Avraham, I want you to know your nephew Lot has been captured and he's sitting in a prison. Avraham goes, the end of the story, Avraham goes on a commando raid and rescues Lot from prison and is able to take Lot out of capture. Saves the day. Rashi explains, why did this fellow Og tell Avraham, tell Abraham that his nephew's been captured? So Rashi explains that Og actually had really bad intentions. Og actually was hoping and anticipating that in the course of the battle, Abraham would get killed, and Og would be able to run away with Avraham's wife, Sarah, who was a very beautiful woman. That was Og's plan. Didn't work, but that was his intention. Wonderful guy Og is. We know another thing about Og. If you actually fast forward several hundred years later, apparently Og lives a very long time. And if you look at the story, the end of the Jewish experience in the desert, times of Moses, Moshe, it's the 40th year, the Jews are in the desert, and the Jews are on a roll. Every country that tries to start up with the Jews is destroyed miraculously. We learn about Sichon, he's the king of the Amori. He tries starting up with the Jews. He gets crushed. Miraculously, God is protecting the Jews. And then we find Og, our good old friend Og. Og wants to start up with the Jews. And the verse tells us, Altira Oso, God reassures Moshe, don't be nervous. Don't be afraid. As if to imply, Moshe was nervous. Moshe was afraid. Asks Rashi, what's Moshe afraid of? You've got God on your side. Why are you nervous? And Rashi explains, Moshe was not nervous. He was not afraid of the military might of Og. Rather, he was afraid of the merit of that mitzvah that Og had done so many years ago by telling Avraham that his nephew had been captured. So Moshe, centuries later, is now nervous and concerned and afraid that maybe the merit of that mitzvah that Og had done so many years earlier, that will be a merit to protect Og, and the Jews will lose to Og. And God says, don't worry, I'm still going to protect you. Now, if you're like me, you'd be very troubled by that passage of Rashi. Because after all, Og did this mitzvah. It was a pretty lousy mitzvah. It was done with all the wrong intentions. Og, when he tells Avraham that his nephew has been captured, wasn't just trying to do a mitzvah. He was hoping that Avraham would get killed so he could run away with his wife. And by the way, when did this mitzvah happen? Hundreds of years earlier. Surely whatever merit there was for this dinky little mitzvah that he did, surely it's not still around to protect him. Why is Moshe nervous? great rabbis of the last generation it's a rabbi named Rabbi Aaron Cutler he's the head of the famed Lakewood Yeshiva it's the biggest yeshiva really in the last you know two millennia yeshiva in Lakewood New Jersey has got thousands and thousands of students started by Rabbi Aaron Cutler and Rabbi Aaron Cutler used to point out says we were taught in the Talmud that one of the things we're going to have to do after 120 years we always have to go ahead and we have to go before God and we have to give a din v'cheshben Din means a judgment, and a cheshben is a calculation. We go before God, and God's going to judge each and every one of us. And Rabbi, Rabbi Cutler explains, what's the difference between a din, between a judgment, and the cheshben, and a calculation? It seems redundant. We're going to go before God, and God's going to adjudicate what we've done right and what we've done wrong in this world. <coughs> Rabbi Cutler explained. He says, din is the mitzvahs that I've done, the mitzvahs that I haven't done, things I'm proud of, things I'm not proud of. 
Cheshbon, he says, a calculation is a far deeper thing. He says, because a lot of times you go ahead and you do a mitzvah, but a mitzvah can have many, many, many fruit. It can impact others, and those others can impact others, and it can create a cascading effect. You do something that inspires one guy, and that guy takes that inspiration and inspires another 10 people, and those 10 people inspire another 10 people, and your one moment of inspiration has inspired generationally thousands and thousands of people. And when God goes ahead and does a calculation for each and every one of us, he does a din, he calculates what have we done, but v'cheshman, he also analyzes, he does a calculus, how have we impacted others generationally? And Rabbi Cutler would always say, think about a guy named Rashi. He would use that as, as an example would be Rashi. Rashi was a wonderful person. We're going, to read, we're going to learn a little bit about his biography in a moment. If we just look at Rashi's life and end there, you've completely missed the point. You've completely missed the point. Because here we are about 904 years after, or something like that, after Rashi's death, 14 years, after Rashi's death. Rashi is the teacher of the Jewish people. 900 years later, everyone in this room has been impacted by Rashi, whether you know it or not. Rashi is one of the most instrumental people in the history of the Jewish people. Every day, millions of people study Rashi. Every day, millions of people are impacted by Rashi. You think you do one mitzvah today and it's done and it's gone. The things that you do today have massive impacts in the future. Og can do a teeny mitzvah with all the wrong intentions. And that hundreds of years later, the merit of that mitzvah, it blossoms. We completely underestimate. We think we're just focused on the here and now. But the reality is, the merit of the things that we do have massive, massive, massive importance. William Whitehouse tried planting pistachio seeds, and they all failed. Except for one. One of them worked. One of them stuck. Every single pistachio seed that's sold in the United States of America today, $1.6 billion, all come from that one seed. There's a tree out in California today that's the great granddaddy of every single pistachio tree seed you have ever had in your life, unless you got ones from Iran. But the $1.6 billion industry all comes from one seed. Imagine you would have tapped White House on the shoulder. You said, White House, I want you to know. You see that seed that you just planted 20 seconds ago? I want you to know, it's 1931, I want you to know in about 90 years from now, right, that seed is going to be producing $1.6 billion of pistachio seeds every single year. He would have said, you're nuts. No one got the pun. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> And it would have just, he would have said, what are you talking about? That's inconceivable. And I, but the truth is, he'd be right. It's such a beautiful metaphor. You know, we do mitzvahs. We, we try to just get through the day. We try to be good. We try to make an impact. We try to make a difference. And maybe we pat ourselves on the back and we congratulate ourselves. You know, I've done right. You have to realize, every time you do a mitzvah, you're planting a pistachio seed that's going to produce $1.6 billion of annual sales. And if you don't believe me, just study the life of Rashi. Look at the life of Rashi. He's a wonderful guy. He's going to write a bunch of books. Rashi's books and Rashi's impact, it is incalculable. It's impossible to overstate the impact that one person has made on the history of the Jewish people. Let's take a look at his life. So Rashi's born in the year 1040. 
in a city in the Champagne region of France. Now, everyone, and I'm going to apologize because I'm going to pronounce it as Troyes. But if anyone here is French, I've just insulted you because apparently it's pronounced Trois, but I'm not going to call it that. Everyone calls it Troyes. Every all goofy Americans, we just call it Troy. So that's where it's from. He grows up. He's born in the city of Troyes, Troy, in the Champagne region of France. It's interesting, as we're gonna do what we're gonna have, the way we're gonna do this, we're gonna do a quick biographical sketch of Rashi and then talk about his, some of his works and what they do and what they are and what they look like. Rashi's actual biography, we do know some things about him, but we have more legends about Rashi and it's hard to know, are they historical facts or are they just legends? They're sourced in a number of different places for those who are interested. There's one book called Shalshalas HaKabbalah, which was written in the 1500s. That's been, in Jewish history, that, that's known as not a historical work. It's a collection of, of legends, and many of them are clearly historic, historically inaccurate. There's something called Seder Hadoros, which is a lot more accurate, and we know the most information from Marshal uh, Rabbi Shlomo Luria, writing in the 1600s, who really gives us the best biographical sketch, and there are others as well. What do we know about Rashi's parents? They tell a few stories about Rashi's Rashi's parents. One is the famous story. Again, it's hard to know. Is it true? Is it not true? But it's, it's a story. And by the way, it's an important thing. Rabbi, Rabbi Beryl Wines, one of the great Jewish historians, always points out whether or not a legend is true is not really important. It doesn't really make a difference. Because if a legend exists within it's, it's something, if it's a verified legend, meaning, I don't know if it's historically accurate, but it's ubiquitous within the Jewish people, it paints a picture of who we're talking about. Whether or not the story is true is not so relevant. The fact that we tell the story, that's what's important. Story goes is Rashi's mother is heavily pregnant with Rashi. Story goes is that she's in the city of Worms, which wouldn't make sense because Rashi's born, born in, in Troyes, but Rashi's going to spend some time later on in Worms. But she's in the, in the city, and there's a, it's, she's walking down a very windy, narrow cobblestone road, and a knight in a chariot comes flying down the road, and there's no room for her, and she's about to be trampled by this knight and chariot. So what does she do? She leans up against the wall and presses her stomach as much as she can to protect her baby in utero up against the wall, and the legend goes is that the wall miraculously dents, indents in, protects her, the knight goes by... Uh, you know, rides by and, Rashi, and Rashi's mother is saved and the story, the legend goes if you go to the place today you can see the indentation in the wall <laughs> I haven't been there, it could be it's true I don't know, but that's the way they say the story what about Rashi's father? so what was Rashi's father's name? anyone know? Mr. Rashi, Mr. Rashi. so let's take a step back Rashi is an acronym Rashi is an acronym for Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki now, by the way, many people you also see another acronym in his name, that it's Rabbon Shel Yisrael, the teacher of all of Israel, which he was. Yitzchaki is his family's name. It's actually his dad's name, Yitzchak. And he took it as his, as his name. That's what he's known, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. Now, what's interesting is we know two legends or two stories about his father. Number one is supposedly the story goes is that Rabbi, uh, this fellow Yitzchak, he comes across a, a, a very precious gem and a jewel. And the, the local priest hears about it, and he wants to go ahead and use it. Somehow they're on a boat. This is when he finds out apparently uh, uh, this fellow Yitzchak has this jewel in his pocket while they're on a boat. 
And I guess there's a priest or someone realizes this would be perfect to use somewhere in the iconography in the local church. And he demands that Yitzchak give it, sell it to him so that they can use it for some, something in their local church. Yitzchak not wanting to help and further, you know, and, and aid and abed the church. He takes the, the, the stone and he's walking by the edge of the boat and he accidentally drops it overboard causing himself a huge financial loss, but he's willing to take that loss so as not to benefit the church. Story goes, a heavenly voice comes out, you've lost this radiant, this radiant gem, I'll be sure to merit you to have a, a child who will radiate and enlighten the entire Jewish people. Again, it's a legend. What we do know is, if you take note, Rashi's we're going to talk about in a moment, one of his major works is his commentary on the Torah. This is commentary on, the, on not just the five books of the Torah, but on most of Tanakh and most of the scripture. Rashi's first comment that he makes on the Torah, bara Elohim in the beginning of the creations of heaven and earth. Rashi's opening comment to his entire work, Amar Rebbe Yitzchak, Rebbe Yitzchak says, Why does the Torah start with the creation narrative? The Torah really should have started with the giving of the first mitzvah, with the story of the counting of the new moon. The Torah should have started there. Rashi gives an answer as to teach us in case any of the nations of the earth want to claim that we've stolen the land of Israel. So we'll go ahead and you read the story of creation. God created the heaven and earth. Same God who created the heaven and earth. He can give it to the Jewish people. Fine. The Taz, writing is one of the classic commentaries, writing in the, tar- the Darche David, writing in the 1600s, tells over a legend, a, a third legend is that, it's interesting, he, Rashi quotes, he opens up his first comment by quoting someone named Rebbe Yitzchak. And he says, I've searched high and low, and never and nowhere in the Talmud, nowhere in the Agadic literature do we ever have this question and this source documented, and we have no one named Rebbe Yitzchak who offers it. And he suggests that he's heard in a legend, passed down generationally, that who is this Rebbe Yitzchak? It was actually Rashi's father. And the way he explains over the legend that I've had is that Rashi's father was actually not a learned man. And Rashi wanted to go ahead and sort of honor his father who wasn't such a learned man. And he said, Dad, you know, what questions do you have on the Torah? And this was his dad's question. So Rashi decided he'll open the Torah by giving honor to his father who wasn't such a learned man by showing, look, he did something and the first comment that Rashi makes on the Torah, he quotes in the name of, Rabbi, of, the great, of his father, Rabbi Yitzchak. Now, Darche David Taz says, and others point out as well, this is probably not true because we have one piece of evidence. If you look at Rashi in his comment, in his works on the Talmud, again, we'll talk about that in a moment, there's one reference where Rashi in the tractate Avodah Zarah actually does quote his father. There's a matter of disagreement of how to interpret a particular passage in the Talmud. And Rashi says, my rabbi taught me version A, but my dad taught me version B. And he goes ahead and he expounds on what that, that, what that explanation of the Talmud is. And Rashi concludes, I happen to think my dad is right. Now, if you go through that passage, you see that anyone who would offer an interpretation, you know, clearly he knew what he was talking about. So it's doubtful his dad wasn't, was, wasn't knowledgeable. It's pretty clear that he was. 
the Seder Hadoros argues that maybe what Rashi, and by the way, they, they also just proved that they found there actually is indeed a source in an early version of a Medrash that this comment of Rashi is actually found, so it's clearly not from his father. It actually was sourced. However, what's, what's interesting, throughout Rashi's work on the Torah, Rashi very rarely attributes sources. If there's a passage that he quotes and it's you know, something that was ascribed to, the, let's say, Rabbi Akiva, Rashi will very, very rarely say, Rabbi Akiva says the following. It's very unusual for Rashi to do that. Very rarely does he do that. It's funny. Here Rashi does quote something in the name of Rabbi Yitzchak. And there are those who explain that the reason why he wanted to quote something he wanted to share an idea that was in the same name of his father and his namesake, so that maybe you can, you know, both legends are true. Rashi's born in the year 1040. What did Rashi do professionally? He was a rabbi. He made, he made wine. You may have heard that Rashi was a vintner. Why do we, where does that come from? So Rashi clearly knew a lot about wine. He talks a, lo a lot about the wine sale. And Rashi, in one of his responses, makes reference to how annoying it is to be buying and selling wine. Many have debated whether or not he actually grew wine. Maybe he was just inv involved in the wine sale. But that's the tradition, is that he sells wine. Rashi's living in this, he's mentioned the Champagne region of France. Now, what's going on there is, there, this is the beginning of Ashkenazic Jewry. Ashkenaz is the Jewish is the, the traditional Jewish expression for lower Germany, kind of like the Rhineland, Alsace-Lorraine, which is kind of in this area, a little bit north of, of the Champagne region. Why is that? Why, uh, don't ask why that's called Ashkenaz. No one will be able to answer that question for you. But that's what it's called. This is the beginning of Ashkenazic Jewry. There are only maybe five, ten, maybe 15,000 Ashkenazic Jews around at the time. Rashi goes ahead and he leaves Troyes, I know, I'm, even when I say it like that, I'm mispronouncing it, right? Is that even sound remotely French? Trois. And he goes to a city, the city of Worms, and eventually also to the city of Mainz. These are in Alsace-Lorraine today. What? Germany. In Germany. Germany, Germany but, but it's... Alsace-Lorraine. Alsace-Lorraine. Okay, I want to thank publicly Mrs. Wolf. She was my 11th grade AP Euro teacher who kept on telling me that Alsace-Lorraine, today it's France, then it was Germany, then it goes back to France, and back to Germany, so thank you, Mrs. Wolf. I got a four on that AP. That's not bad. Thank you. Rashi studies under two different, uh, a couple different mentors. One of his teachers is Rabbi, is Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakar, and then perhaps Rabbi Yaakov, after that he studies under Rabbi Isaac ben, ben Eliezer Halevi. Why is that significant? If you, if you read through Rashi's literature, Rashi will quote regularly from Rabbeinu Gershom. Who's Rabbeinu Gershom? Rabbeinu Gershom or Hagola. Rabbeinu Gershom lives a generation before Rashi. Rabbeinu Gershom is really the granddaddy of Ashkenazic Jewry. He's the first major figure in Ashkenazic Jewry. Rashi quotes from him regularly. Rabbeinu Gershom was the teacher of, Rabbeinu, of Rabbi Yaakov. So he's kind of two generations removed from Rashi. Rashi also studied, as I mentioned, under this rabbi named Rabbi Yitzchak. Rabbi Yitzchak's rabbi was Rabbi Haigo. Little bit of Jewish history. At this point in Jewish history, if you'd gone back one century earlier, or one millennia earlier, the fulcrum of Judaism was where? In Babylonia. In modern-day Iraq, Iran, Pumpadisa, Sura. That was where the Geonim were. Those were the leaders of the Jewish people. The Gaonic era dies right as Rashi is born. But it's interesting, the last great Gaon, the late, last great leader of Babylonian Jewry was a rabbi named Rabbi Haigon, who was the rabbi of Rash, Rashi's second rabbi. 
The reason why this is important is because Rashi's writing is Rashi's thinking. Rashi quotes regularly the opinions of Rabbeinu Gershom and the opinions of Rabbi Haigom. What's notable and interesting and noteworthy is Rashi seems to not have been influenced. What's always interesting when you study history is you always look for the negative. What don't you see? What you don't see about Rashi is Rashi never quotes the riff, Rabinu Al-Fasi. He never quotes, uh, the riff is the great Sephardic leader living in Fez and Morocco and in other places. Rashi never quotes the riff. This is because Rashi had something against Spartac jury? No, it's not Rashi didn't have any. It's just he never was influenced by Spartac thinking. So Rashi is impacted by Babylonian scholarship, by Ashkenazic scholarship, but not once in any of his writings does he quote the riff. He just was not influenced very much by Spartac writing. While he's in Worms and Mines, Rashi marries. How many children does Rashi have? Well, it depends who you ask. He definitely had two daughters. He may have had three daughters. He may have had four daughters. He definitely didn't have any sons. But he had three daughter, two daughters, three daughters. The two daughters we know of are Yocheved and Miriam. And I believe it's Yocheved has three, marries a rabbi named Meir. And they have three, oh, they actually have four children, but three of which we know a lot about. The oldest is Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir. The middle one is Rabbeinu Yitzchak ben, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi, I think it's Yitzchak, I must be saying, Rabbi Yitzchak ben Meir, and the third is Rabbi Yaakov ben Meir. So the first one is known by his acronym Rashbam, the second one is the Rivam, and the third is not known by his name Yaakov, he's actually known by his nickname was Rabbeinu Tam. These three rabbis would be the, the illustrious leaders of the school of the Tosafists. These were descendants of Rashi who would go on for the next Three, three centuries to really be the powerhouses of Ashkenazic Jewry. So legend goes, if you take note, the, t- the tradition that really all of Jewry uses for the tefillin that we wear every day, there are different differences of opinion about exactly how, how tefillin are made. So the predominant, overwhelming majority, universal, it's actually universal, is we use, we wear tefillin, they're called Rashi tefillin. What that means is that we follow the tradition of Rashi. Now, his grandson, Rabbeinu Tam, actually had a different opinion about how tefillin should be manufactured. Some people will actually, after they put on their Rashi tefillin, they'll put on Rabbeinu Tam tefillin as well. They'll actually own two pairs of them. The legend goes is Rashi has Rabbeinu Tam sitting on his knee as a little infant. Rabbeinu Tam whaps his tefillin off of his forehead, and Rashi saw that this is, uh, you know... Somehow indicative of something trouble to come. There are a couple stories and legends of Rashi that are clearly not true. One story is that Rashi traveled Jewry. He left France, leaves the Alsace Lorraine region, leaves Champagne, and he travels the world. He goes to Babylonia, goes to Italy, goes to Jerusalem. That is almost definitely not true. What is definitely not true is that at some point he bumps into Rambam. He bumps into Rambam. That's a legend. There's no way that's true. Rashi dies significantly before Rambam is born. But that legend is out there. The other great legend of Rashi, which is a great, great, great story, is the year 1096. Again, Rashi's born in the year 1040. He's going to die the year 1105. The year 1096 is a year of absolute tragedy in Jewish history. 1096 is the beginning of the First Crusades. Godfrey of Boulogne, Boulogne, I can never pronounce it. Godfrey of Boulogne, 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 
is the leader of the, the first crusades, and they're going to savage and destroy countless Jewish communities on their conquest of Jerusalem. And the legend goes is that, is that Godfrey, on his way to conquering Jerusalem, stops in Troyes and, and wants to visit Rashi. He bumps into Rashi and asks, how's it going to go? How's my journey? How's my conquest? What's going to happen? And Rashi says, I want you to know, you're going to end up returning back to Troyes, your army will be destroyed, and you'll have three horses with you, and that's it. Now, Godfrey didn't like that prediction. And Godfrey says, Rashi, I want you to know, if I come back with four horses, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> the story goes, is that Godfrey goes, he conquests and conquers Jerusalem, but on his way back, his army gets destroyed and utterly beaten. And as he's passing back, the, you know, through the, towards the city of Troyes, he remembers Rashi's prediction. But he's got four horses with him. And in a moment of vengeance, he comes to the city of Troyes with plans of killing Rashi. And as he's about to enter the city, the gate of the city collapses and kills one of his horses. That's one of the great legends of Rashi. Is it true? Is it not true? Some, some people will tell you it's impossible to be true because Godfrey never actually returned to Jerusalem. But many actually say the story is probably true. It just wasn't with Godfrey. It was with one, with one of his you know, inferiors. But it's very possible the story is true. Okay. Rashi is going to be prolific in his writing. And we're going to talk about his two major works are going to be his commentary on the Talmud and his commentary on the Torah. It should be noted before we discuss them briefly, Rashi was actually also a poet. And he wrote many, or not many, he wrote several piyutim, liturgic poems, two of which are recited by Jews everywhere. We recite them, I'm sure Rabbi Davidowitz and Rabbi Goldman, you recall the, the piyut during Erev Rosh Hashanah Slichos. It's the third slicha that we recite is actually authored by, you'd have no way of knowing that's, that Rashi noted, wrote it, other than if you read very carefully in the footnote, it says that it was authored by Rashi. Otherwise, it's like virtually impossible to find. But Rashi actually did write one of the slichos buried deep deep within the Jewish liturgy. Um, so he was a poet, which is interesting. That's very unusual for Ashkenazic Jews at this time to be involved in poetry. As a matter of fact, the Spanish Jews got very upset whenever any of the Ashkenazic Jews would try to write. The Sephardic Jews were known for their beautiful poetry. And whenever an Ashkenazic Jew would try to write a poem, they'd be like, Guys, just, you stick to your Talmud. Leave, leave us with the poems. Stay in your lane. One other thing before we start talking about Rashi and his great works is... Has anyone ever heard of Rashi script? Yes. Rashi script. Okay, if you take note, if you ever look in any work of Rashi, the font type that Rashi's comments are written on, are written in, are a very funny and unusual font. And if you ask any school child or scholar, they will tell you it's called Rashi script, which has led to an erroneous belief that Rashi was the inventor of this type of this font. That's incorrect. Raji had more important things to do than worrying about font type. But uh, it actually, it come, Rashi probably did not use that font when he wrote. This is an Arabic script. The reason why it's called Rashi font, or Rashi script, is because when, the, when books first start getting published, so the publishers wanted to differentiate between the primary text and, Rashi te and Rashi's commentary. So the primary text was always, always published in the traditional block print, 
and they would offset Rashi's commentary by using a different typeset and a different font. And they just happened to pick this old Sephardic font. And whenever Rashi's comment, you know, were published, they just happened to coincidentally use this font, and it just got so associated with Rashi, became Rashi's script. Interestingly, Rashi's works became so influential, are such a part of Judaism, and are so central in Jewish scholarship. The first book ever published, the first Jewish book ever published, it's in the year 1475, was not even the Torah. It was Rashi's work. It was Rashi's commentary on the Torah. The first Jewish book ever published. He also wrote a bunch of chuvos, a bunch of responsa, which are always fun to read because that's where you can pick up a little bit of the story of Rashi's life. We also know a little bit of Rashi from one of his students who would write a commentary kind of on the sitter. It's called the Machsor Vitri, which is a, a real powerful insight to what was going on during this time. Now let's take a moment to talk about Rashi's two major works. Rashi's commentary on the Torah is the commentary on the Torah. All commentary on the Torah today is somehow, I wouldn't say traceable, but it's usually Rashi's commentary on the Torah is going to be the launching point. Interestingly, Rabbeinu Tam, who we mentioned, is Rashi's grandson. He would write, this is quoted by, I saw this in, in, where did I see it? In the Chida, it was one of the, Shemos Hagadolim, it's one of the great, sorry, one of the other sources on this, on this, uh, uh, He's one of the great biographers of Jewish history. He writes that he heard that Rabbeinu Tam, who is going to be an illustrious leader of the Jewish people, he said, look, if needed, I could have matched my grandfather Rashi's commentary on the Talmud. I could have done it. Rashi's commentary on the Torah, unmatchable. Could never have done it. It's noteworthy. Ramban, Rabbi Moshe Nachmanides, 200 years later, is going to write his incredible work and commentary on the Torah. His beautiful introduction to the, his, his commentary on the Torah, he talks about the fact that there's going to be another rabbi who lives actually at the same time as Rashi, just a, you know, overlaps slightly with Rashi, is a rabbi named Avraham Ibn Ezra. You may have heard of him, his commentary on the Torah, the Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra argues regularly with Rashi, and Ramban writes his third commentary sort of to defend Rashi. And listen to what he writes, just so you get a sense of where Rashi fits in. Rashi's work on the Torah fits in in terms of being a, uh, a launching point of Jewish erudition. He writes, Pirush Rabbeinu Shlomo, the commentary of Rabbeinu Shlomo, that's Rashi. Ateres Tzifi is the crown of beauty, Vitziferes Tefara, and it's the shining gem. Muhtar bin Yimuso bin Mikra, his points are crowned, and the, his points on the Torah are, are, are crowned, the Mishnah of the Gemara with the Mishnah and the Talmud. Listen to this, so it's beautiful poetry. He was Spartic, so he can get away with good poetry. Lo mishpat habachora. Rashi has the firstborn's right, which means Rashi's commentary on the Torah, it's like the right of the firstborn. Rashi's interpretation of the Torah, that's the primary source. That's the launching point for all discussion on the Torah. Lo mishpat habachora. Bidvarov ehege. In his words, ehege, I'm going to delve into, I'm going to study. Ba'ahavasam eshge, with love, I'll debate. With Rashi's words, there'll be a give and take and a back and forth, analysis and investigation. 
with his explanations and his drushas, his explanations, and every Agadic teaching. Asher bepirushav zechura, that can possibly be remembered. And this is what he says about Ibn Ezra. I like this. Vim Rabbi Avram bin Ezra, with the great Rabbi Avram ben Ezra, tia lanu tochachos megula. There will be open rebuke. Ramban bashes Ibn Ezra regularly. But here he ends off, the ahava misutara, but with a hidden love. I thought that's beautiful. Like he bashes Ibn Ezra, but there's a little bit of love there as well. His commentary on the Torah is incredible. Rashi, over 40 times, tells us that his goal and his plan is just to tell us the pshat, the simple explanation of the Torah. That's his goal. Um, No other commentaries have been subject to so many super commentaries. Do you know how many books, hundreds and hundreds of books, super commentaries have been written on Rashi's commentary on the Torah. School children begin by studying Torah, the Chumash, with Rashi. It is the first and primary source. If you want to have a working understanding of the Chumash, you need to have a working understanding of Rashi's commentary on the Chumash. It's, uh, there's just no other way around it. It's so fundamental and such a part of Jewish explanation and Jewish life. Rashi's other great work is his commentary on the Talmud. His commentary on the Talmud is very different than his commentary on the Torah. The Marshal tells us without Rashi's commentary on the Talmud, the Talmud would be a sealed book. It would be not studied by the Jewish people. I'm going to put Rabbi Goldman on, and Rabbi Davidowitz on the spot. Have you ever studied the Talmud? So they'll say yes. I would argue you've never studied the Talmud. You've studied the Talmud with Rashi. Imagine taking, no, seriously, imagine taking Rashi out of the Talmud. It's impossible to understand. Here's why. And this is where it's, it's, it's hard to explain what he's done without actually doing it. You have to study it to really appreciate. The Talmud, the challenge with the Talmud is, is there's no punctuation in the Talmud. The Talmud uses Aramaic and very terse words. It's hard to know where a question begins and where an answer, and, and a question ends and an answer begins. It's hard to know where to put the periods, where the commas go. What are translations? What is the meaning? Rashi starts with just giving us punctuation. You read a passage in the Talmud. It's like, what's going on over here? You look at Rashi. Rashi will say, Bitmia, this is a question. He's literally providing punctuation. Something as simple as that. Without it, it's, it's virtually impossible to study the Rashi. The most incredible, one of the most incredible things I find, there are two unbelievable things about Rashi's commentary on the Talmud, which are, it's, it's, in, it's, Undescribable. I've never seen anything ever in my life in any types of study that matches the following two things. Number one, if you are a seventh grader, my son has just started studying Talmud. He's in seventh grade. He studies the Talmud with Rashi's commentary. The beauty is, if I were writing a commentary for a seventh grader, or if I was going to suggest for a seventh grader, what is the best possible commentary for you? I would look at Rashi and say, you have to use Rashi. Rashi's perfectly written for a 7th grader. In other words, think about it like this. If you were going to recommend a book for a 7th grader, you probably wouldn't recommend a very difficult and terse and involved work. You wouldn't wouldn't recommend a book that's, I don't know, Harry Potter. It's on a 7th grader's level. Okay, and it's perfect. And that's what Rashi's commentary is for. If you were going to make a recommendation for a PhD candidate, on some very difficult and involved scholarly topic. What would be a good book to recommend? 
I would recommend Rashi. It's unbelievable. The same word that Rashi uses in explaining the Talmud is the perfect Harry Potter version and level for a seventh grader, but it also has so many profoundly deep levels that it influences till today scholar after scholar after brilliant Talmudist. In the same words. It's indescribable. It's like... It's so, hard, it's so unimaginable how the same comment can be perfect for a child and perfect for the PhD candidate. The other thing that's absolutely amazing about Rashi's commentary is that Rashi, if you study the structure of Rashi's commentary on the Talmud, it's a running commentary, meaning it's not written in essay format. It's not like Rashi looks at a passage, looks at a statement, looks at a topic in the Talmud and says, here, I'm going to write a, uh, an essay, a short explanation, questions and answers and proofs and back and forths and halachic rulings. That is not how Rashi's commentary on the Talmud is written. Rashi's commentary on the Talmud is written as a running, flowing commentary. He goes phrase by phrase by phrase, explaining, as we mentioned, a running flow of the Talmud. Here's what's absolutely remarkable about Rashi's running commentary in the Talmud. Rashi published his work. Many, many, many commentaries have been written on the Talmud. They are all written as essays, including the Tosafists, the great Tosafists. They have questions and answers and debate the Talmud. What's absolutely remarkable is you will not find any other rabbis of that generation and subsequent generations that would write a work similar in style to Rashi. Meaning... They might argue with Rashi, they might debate Rashi, but it's written in essay format. But no one bothered to write another running commentary with the Talmud, which is Rashi style. Why didn't anyone bother saying, look, you know, Rashi's a wonderful rabbi, and he wrote a wonderful running commentary in the Talmud, but I'm the Rambam, I'm the Rashba, I'm Ramban, I'm a great rabbi too, and I'll author my version of a running commentary of the Talmud. Why does that not exist? You know what the answer is? Because immediately after Rashi published his work, it was universally accepted amongst Ashkenazic Jews, amongst Sephardic Jews, amongst Babylonian Jews, amongst Italian Jews, amongst all of Jewry around the globe. This is the running commentary for the Talmud. We don't need another version of it. You want to argue with Rashi? Write an essay. You want to disagree with Rashi? That's great. But another running commentary was universally accepted. No one even bothered doing another one because it was so beautifully and wonderfully and universally accepted. That's how impactful Rashi was. There are a couple of tractates where Rashi doesn't have his commentary. I think they say it's 30 out of the 39, famously in the middle of Baba Basra, tractate Baba Basra, his commentary ends. And also, interestingly, Rashi's commentary ends on tractate Makot, folio 19b. He's in the middle of discussing something that has to do with the laws of purity and impurity. And suddenly Rashi's commentary ends. And we have a comment inserted by, we don't know who, probably by a publisher who published Rashi. And he said, Rabbeinu, you know, gufo tahar v'yatsa nishbaso b'tahara. Rashi is discussing the laws of purity. And that's where Rashi dies when he's writing his commentary on the Talmud. And the publisher writes, Rashi's he was pure, and his soul leaves in purity, discussing the laws of purity. Lo pirish yoser. Rashi tragically didn't write any further on this track. It's hard to imagine anyone who's had a bigger influence on the Jewish people than Rashi. 
And I want to end just with the following important message. You can study Rashi as a biographical person. It's interesting. What color shirt did Rashi wear? What made Rashi laugh? What made Rashi cry? And that's important, that's interesting, and I find it fascinating. Or you can study Rashi. You can be a part of the chain of tradition of Jewry that goes back 914 years to the words of Rashi. I'm curious where Rashi lived and what he ate for dinner. But infinitely more valuable is to be part of the process. Pick up one of Rashi's work. I'm going to recommend everyone. Art Scroll has a translation of Rashi's work on the Torah. In case Hebrew is something that you struggle with, Rashi's commentary has been translated into English many, many times. Be a part of the game. Don't just study Rashi as a historical figure. Study Rashi for his richness, his beauty, and his impact on the Jewish people. And God willing, we should be inspired, and we should continue to plant pistachio seeds for generations to come. Thank you all. If anyone has any questions, comments, I'm here to stick around. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascolo.org.